0: Hello, everyone. This is the Contemplating Christian. I'm Samuel Webb, and I have with me here Will Stevie. Um, and today we are going to be doing one of C.S. Lewis's essays. Again, we've been on a C.S. Lewis kick, so we are uh, talking a lot about him. He is He's an awesome guy. Yeah. But today it's his essay, Learning in Wartime. All right. And we're just going to start right away by reading the first sentence of his essay and, and talking about that. He starts off this topic of learning in wartime by saying a university is a society for the pursuit of learning. All right. So that's what he says. And I think there are certain things we actually need to preface before we get into learning in wartime. And if we want to modernize this a little bit to current day stuff, we could just say, uh, how can we learn in bad times? How can we learn in general? But he does say university is uh, an institution for the pursuit of learning, right? And something in our culture today, that's actually something we have forgotten about. Um, University is literally something that pursues the truth, the one truth. Uh, And actually, what I learned recently is the word university means one truth. And I guarantee you, if you went on a university campus or college campus probably no student would know that no student would know that at all. And so I think that's, that's something important when it comes to that. So yes, we are going to be talking about learning in bad times, but also just in general, we've already gotten off the track of what learning is supposed to be. Right. Yeah. And, so and
1: what is, and CS Lewis is just, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Broader than just uh, how do we learn in the midst of it? So he's Lewis is, giving this address, giving this essay and this address in the midst of World War II. So World War II is just starting. And he's giving this essay, I think, like a month after uh, Germany had declared war, Great Britain had declared war on Germany, It's like a month after this happened. And he's basically giving this address to these students in Oxford and telling them how they can be learning, even though World War II is about to break out and everybody's talking about it and you might get drafted next week how do you go about your classes? How do you even think about it? And so he's basically saying, like you're saying, um, it's raising education and learning in the pursuit of the good, the true, and the beautiful to its proper place of, we should be doing these things for their own sake because of how good they are. Um, Not simply because we have to go get a good job or something like that. There is a higher purpose to learning.
0: Yeah, there is. And so that's, that's just what we wanted to start with. Right there, so we we can say that during anything. So like, um, how can we learn, or just like read silly books, or you know study random things that may not pertain to anything? How can we go look at a painting when you know COVID's happening, or how can we uh, how can we study literature when uh, a bunch of babies are are being aborted, or how can we um, uh, or how can we? again, like analyze some piece of art or work or maybe even like a uh, song or something like that when there are just like a bunch of homeless people or uh, yeah. diseases all all going about in third world countries. Like how, how can we just sit down and like study a book during all this crap, right? right. That's, yeah, uh, that's what it's saying.
1: It's right, a great question. So then going into what he talks about with heaven and hell, right?
0: Yeah, so, um, from there, he goes straight into escalating it. So, yeah. obviously, he establishes this idea that we have to follow Jesus's teachings as Christians, and whether we like it or not, he teaches about heaven and hell. And, uh, in, in his time, he actually noted in, in this essay that. A lot of preachers were shying away from that topic because of everything that was going on. But actually, C.S. Lewis dives into that topic and goes headfirst into it, and he escal- escalates it by saying, "Okay, uh, if you want to say that, how can we learn during wart- wartime? I'm just going to say, how can we do any of this stuff if all of us have always either been on the brink of heaven or hell, right? right. So the the big point here is the human being or human beings in general have, they've always been under some sort of horrible thing. That's, that's the big point he's getting at. Right. Hmm.
1: Right. So we're always under this huge existential, existential stress of the afterlife and our death that we ignore and intentionally distract ourselves from in all of our day-to-day tasks that we do. And we pretend that we're not going to die. And we pretend that we aren't, uh, plummeting towards life with christ forever or life without christ forever and he says that war we all we all of a sudden go oh my mm-hmm. gosh how can we do anything when war is happening when in reality in the christian life we, we should be thinking that all the more of how can we be living our lives when we are on the precipice of heaven or hell and it's just a brilliant thing of uh putting all of putting war in perspective uh putting yeah. death in perspective Yeah,
0: it does. It does put everything into perspective. And it's it is this idea of if we were waiting for a secure time, right, just the perfect moment, it would never come and we would never begin anything. Right. Nothing would get accomplished when it comes to culture. And Mm -hmm. he gives the analogy of insects. He, He actually says insects chose security over all this stuff we do. Um, One one resounding theme is that men and women are different. We are made in the image of God. That is actually something I think our our culture has really forgot, but he says we're different, right? And he goes on to make a bunch of different points about how we're different, but he would say stuff like, yeah, when we're fighting wars, um, people make jokes on the front lines while fighting, right? Um, Which is, a, w- a wild idea. So like his his big thing is life has never been normal. All right. We should just do the stuff that we are meant by nature to do. Mm-hmm. Because if we're, if we're just going to say, oh, it's wartime or something like that, we're just constantly making excuses to not do any of this stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. So in a sense, Lewis is saying we're always in wartime and there isn't mm-hmm. a. There, there is less unique about wartime than we think, or than the people in his time during World War II would have thought. And yeah, just to read the section you mentioned, uh, talking about how humans are different than insects or animals, how we're rational animals and what makes us different. He says, they, talking about us, men and women, they propound mathematical theorems in beleaguered cities. They conduct metaphysical arguments in condemned cells. They make jokes on scaffolds, they discuss the last new poem while advancing to the walls of Quebec, and they comb their hair at Thermopylae. This is not a panache, it is our nature. Yeah. So it's just that we are rational animals. So we both have an animal instinct and an animal part of us where we fight and we seek preservation of our race and all these different things. At the same time, we're rational, and there are things about us that mark us and make us way different than um, the insects or the animals.
0: Yeah, and when it it comes to escalating this to the idea of heaven and hell, there are going to be the people then that say, oh, how can you think of nothing else besides saving souls? Then, Because obviously Jesus did give us the Great Commission. He did say, go out and make disciples of all nations. And we should be concerned with people's souls. But the big question here is, if we are going to say, something like that, whether it be wartime or heaven and hell, and we we say, how can you think of anything other than this? Or how can you think of anything other than this? Is that really realistic? That's that's his point. As in, can every... Okay, so if we're going to say that, how, how can you think of anything other than saving souls? Can every activity really be sacred, right? Can every single thing I possibly do on this earth be sacred and religious, right? Right? Um, I think it's kind of, an C.S. Lewis is pointing out that it's kind of an impossibility. If if I'm just going to say, we can't do anything else but this, um, that's actually impossible. And in fact, if you go to the front lines of a battle, you're going to find people uh, writing letters about life, sleeping, eating, talking, making jokes. um, And they're going to be doing a lot of the same stuff. Most of our life is just kind of like what we say is normal activities. Uh, And that that's his big point. Like no matter what situation we are in, that stuff isn't going to change. Right.
1: Right. And he says this later too. He says that how all of our duties are actually religious duties. So it's, it's kind of taking it from the other direction of everything we do can't be sacred. It's kind of saying the same thing in reverse of every duty is actually a religious duty. And, uh, we shouldn't make these huge separations between the two of them, but our obligation to perform every, every duty is therefore absolute because every duty we have is a religious uh, duty. Mm -hmm. And so there is a, um, yeah, there isn't this huge separation of uh, the spiritual things we do. And then the normal things we do, Mm -hmm. we should have this vision of our lives where everything we're actually doing is spiritual and connected to God in some way, washing dishes, helping our kids out, whatever it is.
0: Yeah. And for, for Christians, Or well, at least Lewis thinks this for Christians after conversion, a lot of our life actually stays the same, right? People, I feel like when it comes to spiritual matters, people are expecting some like crazy intense spiritual journey or spiritual experience that's going to change every single part of their life. So they don't have to do anything like normal anymore. That's, that's actually not how, how it goes. Like what's going to happen is yes, you will have a spiritual experience and you, you are going to convert. But you're going to do most of the same stuff, right. yeah. which is right. um, which is not like downplaying Christianity. It's just it is just being realistic. You're still going to eat, sleep, make jokes, um, hang out with friends, stuff like that. The only difference is I would say, one, you'd be doing it for the glory of God. And then also, two, you would probably do those things in a different way. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. It's not tearing down spiritual things it's exalting what we consider normal or mundane things mm-hmm. and it's saying actually all of these things are just part of the human life and they're supposed to be done to the glory of god
0: yeah That's and I mean, yeah yeah and this actually reminds me of something like a lot of jews have pointed out um specifically like dennis prager and also ben shapiro have, have pointed this out but basically the the fact that jews in the holocaust still did their normal stuff like they still celebrated their jewish festivals they still did their prayers and they still showed that uh showed faith Hmm. right which is incredible why would these jews in the holocaust like in some concentration camp experiencing all these things just still do like a normal thing right like they their life was probably terrible why would they do that um and it's It is just this fact that it's just normal for human beings to do that and religion and religious activities fall under that. All right. No matter the circumstances, people are going to be religious in some respect.
1: Right. I've, uh, I've heard a story of different Lutheran, Lutheran ministers who were in an internment camp in Germany and they basically had a makeshift celebration of the Eucharist together in which obviously all of the, um, the right things weren't there. The right elements weren't there. They weren't able to, they had to speak very quietly and almost silently mm-hmm. to each other. Um, so y- you could be very legalistic and say it wasn't the proper celebration of the Eucharist, but I think mm. you know, Christ is very responsive to that sort of faith of we are wanting to do this thing. Um, so I'm always encouraged by that. Yeah. It's similar to what you're saying about the Jews as well.
0: Yeah. And really we can't stop these activities. We can only substitute them, right? So right. when it comes to these activities of learning or reading, or the, there's also the religious ones, but the, the the essay is mainly on learning. It's like, yeah. why, why read a book in this time or something like that? We can't really stop these activities. We can only substitute them. So um, it's it's this idea of if you're going to make that excuse and say, I'm not going to read this book because of a war, or I'm not going to read this book because horrible things are happening in the world. What you're going to find yourself doing is reading. <laughs> it's just going to be a horrible book, or you're going to read a social media post instead of a book, or you're, you're going to read the newspaper, or you're going to read news, or you're going to be reading something because reading is a human activity, right? right. You're going to be doing something, so you can't stop it. You just substitute it. So right. uh, if, if you're talking about thinking, you can't stop thinking, but you can stop thinking rationally and start thinking irrationally. Um if if you don't if you if you don't want to do like I don't know why you wouldn't want to do good things, but if you don't want to do good things, you can't just say I'm gonna stop doing things. No, you would just start doing bad things. Right. That's what would happen.
1: Yeah, I want to read that section
0: real quick. It says Okay. uh, Yeah, read it it, because CS is brilliant.
1: If you attempted in either case to suspend your whole intellectual and aesthetic activity, so that's learning, pursuing the beautiful think of like painting a picture or uh, analyzing music or writing a book, something like that, or reading. Mm-hmm. If you attempted to suspend your intellectual and aesthetic activity, you would only succeed in substituting a worse culture life, cultural life for a better. You are not, in fact, going to read nothing, either in the church or in the line. If you don't read good books, you'll read bad ones. If you don't go on thinking rationally, you will think irrationally. If you reject aesthetic satisfactions, you will fall into sensual satisfactions. I think we should park out. That's a really good, big concept of, I like when you, uh, when we were chatting about this before and you said, uh, if you think like with your students, how they say like, I don't want to read a book because I don't read. A good question to ask them is actually you read a ton. How Mm -hmm. how much do you, and just actually analyzing you read a ton of words. They're just all garbage. (laughs) You just read, uh, like you just read social media posts all day. Or you read, uh, little snippets or blurbs or memes or things like that. You read and intake lots of information. Yeah. So it's not whether you do it, but which and mm-hmm. the which is replacing good nourishing things for your soul with like utter garbage or just meaningless stuff. That's just not really here or there. It's neutral. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's just a great point.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. And I, I haven't asked my students that or, Or really realize that uh, before before the summer, so I haven't tested it out. But in the in the fall when I go back to school, I'm going to uh, be asking him that. The moment they say, "I don't want to read," I'm going to be like, "Well, you do read all the time. You already read, Mm -hmm. and you already read.
1: You already seek. Like if you think you're a not cultured person or you don't, um, you don't have an appetite or a taste for beautiful things or art or music or reading or anything like Mm. that. You do." It's just they're all filled with different things right now, likely. Yeah. So they're filled with um, any number of other things. And, like, yeah. in a very distorted way, um, your desire for beauty, something like that, that could be distorted and filled right now with watching pornography, something yeah. like that, consuming uh, distorted beauty, distorted and evil versions of it. Yeah. Um, just as an example.
0: Yeah. And I mean, think of it when it comes to the arts. Uh, Do you think of how miserable life would be without it? Like, let's not even talk about books and art and stuff like that. Let's just talk about music. Let's say, let's say you are going to use the excuse of, Oh, things are bad. So how can we do this stuff? Okay. Don't listen to any song until this bad thing is over. Like you're going to find your life pretty miserable because music we, like human beings are musical creatures. We love music. And if, And if you're really going to make that claim, live up to it. Stop listening to all music for like the rest of a war and see how your life is. Now, I I guarantee you, uh, actually, if you look at it, wars have produced some of the best songs and best poems and best Mm -hmm. narratives of all time. Like if we we think about it, a lot of what's taught in school, uh, like All Quiet on the Western Front, um, any... There, there are a couple Holocaust books, so Knights or The Diary of Anne Frank. Kids read those, all right? Uh, and we teach those. Or uh, there, there are so, some some poems and songs from war times or establishing countries. So when our country was established, obviously there was the Revolutionary War and stuff. There are songs and anthems produced from that war, right? right. And so if if we're gonna say that we we shouldn't do the arts because it's wartime. I would say war accelerates or produces a climate in which the arts are actually produced at a a greater degree um, in certain respects. Totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a place where arts flourish. Um, Yeah, and so he says, if you reject aesthetic satisfactions, you will fall into sensual satisfaction. So Lewis is basically saying human nature has a natural appetite and a desire for aesthetic things. And Mm -hmm. so if you aren't filling your life actively with good and beautiful things like wonderful music, wonderful art, wonderful movies, wonderful books, um, enriching experiences with Christian fellowship, things like that, Mm -hmm. that will be filled in by something else that is worse. Yeah. And so you aren't Deciding to be a not artsy person or a not uh, somebody that doesn't learn, you will be learning just you'll be learning terrible things. Yeah, Is basically the was the point.
0: Yeah. And he he makes a uh, funny uh, observation kind of I think it's comical in a sense, but it's also so it's also profound. It's finite objects cannot overtake the whole of our attention. Right. Only an infinite object can do that. Finite objects are limited, so they cannot take all of our attention. So which is why um, the analogy he gives is someone obsessed with like saving people from drowning. If if all someone did and talked about and lived like was training themselves and people to help other people from drowning, even at the cost of their own life and wouldn't let anyone do anything else other than train until every single person knew how to save someone from drowning, we would call that person obsessive and maniacal. And, and the fact is uh, that it's a finite object or a finite activity, which is why we would say it's crazy. But when we're talking about God, or infinite objects so like love or something like that, we can live for that stuff. We can live for that stuff. Because It's infinite and we wouldn't then call someone crazy or maniacal or obsessive or something like that, right? No one's going to be like, oh, you're crazy because you're living for love or something like
1: that. Right. You, you are not, yes, it is not overly obsessive to devote your life to truth. Yeah. Because God is the truth. And so when we say things like that, we are actually mapping onto God and who he is. So that's why it's uh, classically conceived God and the transcendentals are synonymous terms there so god is the true the good and the beautiful and so in that conception of who god is uh devoting your life to the pursuit of truth or devoting your life to the good uh the moral utmost the moral highest the good or the beautiful those are seeking god in a real way Mm -hmm. and but like you said a finite good devoting your life to a finite good like devoting your entire life to marriage in one sense, is disordered. Um, so you can devote your life to God through marriage, uh, in in a real way. But if yeah. you are overly obsessive or idolizing one thing that's finite that will end, then you are uh, it's disordered.
0: Yeah. So you aren't replacing anything when you become like spiritual or religious. So when when you're talking about these uh, greater things, right? You aren't going to replace your normal activities. Uh, he. Right. He writes something to the extent of the supernatural employs and does not replace the natural activity. So there's no conflict right there. If I'm going to be religious, I can still do normal things. And he actually like quotes the uh, Bible verse, whatever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do unto the glory of God. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's um, these normal activities we do. It can be for the glory of God. Right. We don't have to stop them. Right, because more important things are happening or something like that.
1: Right, and so I love, uh, John, John Piper has an article called Drinking Orange Juice to the Glory of God, which is, <laughs> which is great, uh, kind of on that First Corinthians 10.31. Yeah. And uh, also A.W. Tozer, his Pursuit of God, has this whole chapter about uh, bridging the divide between the sacred and the secular in your life. And so seeing your normal, everyday, mundane tasks in relation to God and glorifying him in those things by doing them as well as you can so whatever your job is for example um let's say you're a bricklayer or whatever doing your job well and excellently is glorifying god uh, and to not let spiritual activities quote unquote um overshadow your regular uh more frequent activities um yeah so I think that's another really big point that c.s lewis makes
0: yeah and we can pursue things for their own sake and move towards God at the same time, right? So I can I can seek truth or do art just for the sake of truth and art and move towards God and have it glorify God all at the same right. time, right? So totally. me doing those things is perfectly fine. And he actually, C.S. Lewis brings up uh, our desire and the teleological argument to helps to prove this. Mm-hmm. So we actually have a desire for these things. So really, uh, the desire isn't bad. The the only time it would become bad is if I was pursuing um, knowledge for the sake of knowledge and for God, but then I start loving my knowledge more than God, right? Right. And me saying like, oh, hey, I have discovered so much and I've written so much and I just know this stuff and I love knowing this stuff. And that's the reason I do it because I just want to know more things, not because I want to pursue truth or because I want to glorify God. But right. because it's all it's all for my knowledge. And if like, I don't know, it gives me dominance over people when I feel smarter than them or something like that, that would right. be bad.
1: Right. When we replace the knowledge itself in the place of the knower, or in the place of the um, the one, the source of the knowledge or the source of the beauty or the source of the goodness, then we are idolizing it and mm. ultimately we will be dissatisfied
0: through that. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my favorite quotes from, from like this essay is, uh, has to do with plucking. So if it gets to that point, um, he, he actually says that a time for, uh, plucking has arrived, I, yeah. I think. So there's a time for plucking and a time for utilizing. So, um, I think the big point is when it comes to learning in bad times and learning in wartime, or doing any normal activities during bad times, um, we should utilize them. But he has this flip side of there is a time for plucking, right? Mm -hmm. If something does become, uh, I don't know, exalted too much, pluck your right eye out, right? Right. Um, Yeah. So so. that, uh, right.
1: That's when he's talking about uh, loving the pursuit of knowledge more than the one who's the source of it himself. If that becomes, Every success in the scholar's life increases this danger. So if you pr- if you're pursuing this learning, mm-hmm. uh, increasing the temptation to idolize it, uh, he must give up his scholarly work. The time for plucking out the right eye has arrived.
0: Yeah, and and let's say this stuff just didn't uh, didn't kind of exist. Let's let's say we didn't have these desires. And they didn't exist. And so we don't have the reason of saying, oh, we have these desires so we can pursue them. What other reason could we find to continue these things during these bad times? And he actually says uh, one of his most famous lines is good philosophy must exist if uh, for any other reason, because bad philosophy (laughs) exists. Um, And so it's that that would be a reason in and of itself to to do this even if we didn't have this desire for truth or or something like that um and it's actually good for us uh because he actually writes this so let me read it the scholar has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great uh cataract of nonsense that pours from his own age um so uh I, i i think i skipped a couple words there but that's uh that's the main gist of it. Like, If we do uh, read this stuff and learn about this stuff and have these, have these arts, in, in a sense, we'll be immune or be able to battle some of the bad stuff that's going around, some bad ideas that are going around during these bad times. Because the last thing we want is a horrible time filled with horrible ideas, right? right. We, we would rather it be a bad time filled with good ideas. Right. And us talking about good things as opposed to bad things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he, uh,
1: in that whole paragraph too, he has this, um, this emphasis on what I think he, he doesn't say these exact words in the paragraph, but this idea of chronological snobbery. Hmm. So this idea of, uh, it's important to learn and especially to glean from the past and to study history and to learn, uh, from the great truths of the past. Um, if for no other reason, to not be blindsided and to be uh, narrowed in by the current age that you're living in. Mm-hmm. And so that's me saying when the, the scholar who has lived in many times or the, the person who has by reading broadly and by learning a lot and by studying history, that person has set himself up well to not be blinded by uh, the current age, mm-hmm. because we're prone to do that if we don't know how history has repeated itself before.
0: Yeah. And so the
1: this, this stress of uh, don't have chronological snobbery. Yeah. Don't, don't say, ah, oh, that's old books. I'm not going to read that.
0: Mm-hmm. And we kind of want to, uh, we kind of want to always do like super grand, important things, but we do have to realize uh, that a lot of vocations and careers have stupid tasks, right? <laughs> so like, Okay, let's use wartime as the first example. Let's say in wartime, you're a soldier. You go out and do a soldier. Even if you're going to do this amazing patriotic thing, defending your country, stopping evil in World War II, uh, what you're going to find is that if you're a private in the military, you're probably going to get tasked with like cleaning the outhouses or something like that. Silly, disgusting task. Doesn't seem important. Doesn't seem to help the war. But someone has to do it. Right. Right. And we don't want to do these because we are, I don't know, too good or, or something like that. So that can, that can be with anything. So, so as a teacher, uh, a lot of bad things are happening in the world. I don't want to do paperwork, but sometimes I have to, right. Right. Um, and I mean, you, you probably have some, some dumb tasks that you have as (laughs) as well. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: think, uh, just recently when, uh, we're chatting with a, a good friend of ours and he said how, uh, taking out the garbage is actually glorifying to God because it's actually Levitical. You're removing waste from the camp <laughs> so like in leviticus you have these different you know ways of the israelites keeping themselves clean and holy and mm. that part of that is but they do certain tasks and certain bodily activities not in the holy place and they don't have certain things in the holy place and so you can think of removing the garbage as removing waste from the camp and returning order to a place that's an exalted view of uh garbage taking disposal. out the trash
0: man <laughs> Uh, (laughs) when I have kids, I'll, I'll have to use that on them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a glorifying thing to take out the trash.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. I wish I had that attitude when I was a kid. I had, that was my chore. (laughs) I had to do it so many times. I hated it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then, okay, let's continue with this, uh, with this Lewis essay because it's a really good essay. He actually moves on to enemies. Mm-hmm. The three enemies of um of our time, kind of, mm-hmm. and he says that it's uh excitement, uh fear, and frustration. Those are the three, mm-hmm. right? And then... yeah,
1: it's, frust- it's so it's excitement, frustration, then fear.
0: Yeah. Okay. There we go. Yeah. And each one poses a different threat and should be responded to in a different way. And I'm sure people struggle with different ones of these enemies, mm-hmm. right? Um, so for, uh, for example, uh, excitement is, uh, is an enemy. And then a defense is to realize that excitement about new things is actually an old enemy. All right. He says something to that degree, like Hmm. this stuff isn't new, right? It's the same old stuff we've always experienced. Um, and then to another degree, it's, we always want distractions. Um, and we're always trying to make stuff up to distract ourselves from, from this stuff so we can that's why excitement is an is an enemy because a lot of people might say oh yeah it's good to be excited I'm excited to do this and this and this but the problem is is um it can be utilized or manipulated to the enemy's plans
1: right and just the uh just the context he's talking about excitement about the war so particularly, yeah. and so it has broad application to us, of course, but he's talking about specifically these three enemies of excitement, frustration, and fear as the three enemies that boil up within us when we think about the war or when we're trying to learn in wartime, as the title of the yeah. essay says. And so this could apply to yeah COVID. This could apply to um, whatever national thing that's going on, mm-hmm. um, whatever bad tragedy. Our tendencies yeah. are to be overly excited about it, uh, like we just talked about. Okay. And then frustration, then fear.
0: Yeah. And so when it comes to excitement about the war or something right. like that, um, we, we would obviously get excited and kind of like stop these silly tasks or learning or want to stop it and wait for favorable conditions. And this is where his big point comes in of favorable conditions never come, right? Mm-hmm. If you're waiting for the perfect time for something, it will never arrive. So like, uh, that, and that can be applied to so many things in life too, more than just wartime and learning. Like, uh, if you're waiting for favorable conditions for kids, never going to come, you don't know what you're going to get with kids. If you're waiting for favorable time to go on a missions trip, never going to come. Right. It's always going to make you uncomfortable in some respect or, uh, or traveling or trying out a new career or going to school. Like. Favorable conditions are never going to arrive, right? Because we always make some excuse. And um, I think, uh, yeah, So some buddies that were in in finance with us, we were talking to them and they said uh, this idea of people talk about when, what would be their limit to get them to quit? Like, how much money do you need to quit? Uh, And people can just keep raising it and raising it, like, let's let the conditions be favorable. And then let's say you you put your let's say I want to save up a million dollars before I do anything. Let's say I do get to a million. Now, that's a lot. But let's say I do get to a million dollars. A lot of people would be then just like, hey, let me just save up a little bit more. Let's yeah. just go 1.2 million. And I'm good. then. Once I hit 1.2 million, I will start all those things. I, I want to start because this is enough. For me to do a lot of stuff with, right? right? And then people can just keep doing that and that and that. And so like when it comes to like marriage or kids or learning, you can say, I'll learn when it when like things are safe and it's the type of school I want. Well, another problem is gonna come up. You're never you're never gonna have the school you you want there. You're never going to uh have a perfect condition for learning or anything like that.
1: Right. Yeah, or just uh putting it into the realm of our like spiritual life um, procrastination spiritually. Uh, mm-hmm. So like
0: fast, I will uh, <laughs> exactly. can away uh, for several times for fasting. <laughs> right.
1: I will figure out the, I will figure out this lust problem once I get married.
0: That's mm-hmm.
1: a pretty common one. Um, mm-hmm. Or I will take my faith very seriously when I graduate or when I get married or when I have kids. Uh, so we have this natural tendency as humans to procrastinate. Uh, I will, so there's never favorable conditions. So like right now live as if you don't have any more time right now, uh, be pursuing good enriching things right now. Be killing sin right now. Be, uh, just don't wait. Don't procrastinate.
0: Yeah. Um, and then that actually moves us to frustration, which is we don't have enough time or being, being too concerned with future things like, Hey, this is, this is going to happen in the future right now. I don't have enough time to do this, so Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it or, or something like that. So there is this idea of, we need to be doing things now, moment to moment. We can't be frustrated with, Oh, I'm frustrated because I don't have enough time to do it. So I'm not going to do it. Um, Right. We, we can die at any point we, we can. Um, So, like, I'm not going to not start something because I might not finish it. Right. I'm just going to start it and do my very best to finish it because chances are I might actually finish it. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I feel like I fall into this a lot where I think I have all of these grand plans of things I want to accomplish and things I want to do, but then I get frustrated and I despair mm. and even procrastinate because of this, uh, because I feel like I don't have enough time to do it. And yeah. this happens a lot. And so I get frustrated about that. And so C.S. Lewis says, um, never in peace or war, commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly and works from moment to moment as to the Lord. Yeah. It is only our daily bread that we're encouraged to ask for. The present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received.
0: Yeah. That's great. So, yeah, it is. Like we should be more concerned with the present than the past and the future, right? We can learn from the past and we can like plan things for the future, but we can actually only do certain duties right now, right? right? So if I made a commitment, the only time I can fulfill that commitment is right now. It can't be, I can't say I'm going to fulfill it in 10 years. I don't know if I can fulfill it in 10 years. I have no idea. All right. I should be worried about fulfilling it this moment because that's the only thing I can actually do. Right. All right. Unless I'm a time traveler. But
1: right, and both the frustration and the excitement both actually lead to inactivity <laughs> just in different ways. I feel like they, they both lead yeah. to not getting anything done properly.
0: Yeah, but they well, just,
1: two sides of the same coin.
0: Yeah, one is planning things for the future and saying we don't have enough time, the other one is getting excited about uh, new things and making distractions um, for stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so they both do lead to inactivity. So that's actually a good observation. And then last last one, fear. Yeah, so
1: good. So he is particularly, again, this is where it's helpful to put yourself in the context of when C.S. Lewis is saying this. He's saying this Mm -hmm. to a group of probably mostly men, uh, like young men, uh, many of which are either directly involved in the war in some way or about to be or might be or are influenced by the war in very serious ways in World yeah. War II. And Lewis himself, of course, fought in World War One, was injured in World War One, And so now he's talking about fear and death as relates to war, and he just has amazing things to say about it. So he says, just to start us off, what does war do to death? It certainly does not make it more frequent. 100% of us die, and the percentage cannot be increased.
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> He that, like he makes a bunch of observations about death, right? Hmm. And most of them, we can just fear and that's pretty much it we can't actually do anything. So um, it might the only thing that might change in wartime pretty much that he points out is uh, how quickly you die, or there are, you actually have a pretty good chance of dying without any suffering. All right. But everyone's still going to die at some point. It's going to happen. Um, It's going to be you're going to suffer in some way, even if it's for a short amount of time or a long amount of time. All right. Uh, It's it's not something that we can avoid. Right. Right. So people are going to be controlled by the fear of war. Like, oh, we're all going to die. Well, Mm -hmm. that didn't change when the war started.
1: Right. And he says that uh, Christians shouldn't have a like a stoicism about death. Uh, yeah. because Jesus in Gethsemane, of course, is agonizing over his yeah. impending death. And so it's not to just shut your brain off and shut your emotions off, but it's to drive away fear. And those yeah. are the opposites. It's not either have no emotions or be fearful. Uh, the Christian response is neither of those things. And so he's saying that we just have to have the right perspective on what death is. We have to put it in right perspective. It's not being a stoic about it. And it's also not being fearful about it. Yeah. Um, So it says but there is no question of death or life for any of us we will all die we need to face that reality the only Mm -hmm. question of this death it is only a question of this death or of that a machine gun bullet now or cancer 40 years later
0: yeah so there it's it's supposed to be humbling right Mm -hmm. and all of us should be aware of our mortality right and then i guess to tie this back to learning Mm Right. It's it's this idea of, okay, all this is going on. We have enemies and stuff like that. Um, The least we can do is to protect our uneducated brethren. Right. And he's talking about scholars at this time. He's not saying all people are uneducated and dumb. Right. He's just saying we should study so that we can protect our uneducated brethren from these bad ideas. It's our we should consider it our duty If we aren't, if we're going to stop learning right now and stop studying and stop doing the arts, that would be like throwing down our weapons and surrendering. Right. That's, that's what he says. Like, uh, learning at some point has to be a duty for some people. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Right. No, that's really good. Um, yeah, I just love how he talks about, and all the, just reminds me of all the biblical admonitions to Christians to. Uh, number their days. So think of Psalm 90, uh, mm. give us give us a heart of wisdom so that we can number our days. Um, yeah. This phrase in Christianity of memento mori, of remembering your death, to yeah. have it always before you. And so, yes, to, to realize that learning and these higher pursuits of the soul and things like that are valuable no matter what. Uh, it doesn't matter how much time you have left. They're good in and of themselves because they're drawing you closer to God.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's good. That's good. That's, uh, that's kind of where he ends though, actually Mm -hmm. with this message of, we should still learn. It's a, it's a duty for some people. So is, um, do you have any last thoughts on this idea?
1: I think we should all just put skulls on our desks (laughs) (laughs) to keep our death in mind.
0: Mm -hmm. Carry a uh, carry. I don't know what I've actually seen is those, uh, memento mori's, like remember your death coins with like a skull on them and it's just yeah. like yeah i don't know i've actually thought about like getting one i don't know what i would do with it i just thought it looked cool so
1: you know in uh on like mount athos like the orthodox orthodox yeah. church in their uh, little island mountain m- monastery thing yeah they have they will like have this whole process where when people die when monks die on the island they bury them but then they dig them up later and collect their bones and they put their skulls in this room and they have all these different skulls of all these saints that have died. And they have certain guys that go in there and like tend to them. And they go in there and like, they place the skulls there and they dust them off and do things with them. Uh, And they're constantly around that. And it's like (laughs) kind of morbid and creepy to us, but they go there and it completely doesn't phase them.
0: Yeah. Wow, that is actually that's wild. Think about like walking into a room of that, just like skulls on the wall, Mm -hmm. all around. Right,
1: and it's saying that hey, we're anticipating the resurrection. Yeah. So for a long time, there's you know there's actually this whole kind of controversy in Christianity about whether to like, uh, whether to cremate people, uh, or how to bury people. So that actually does matter to Christians of uh, what to do with bodily remains. not going to get into that i'm not going to get into that debate now or anything like that but yeah Yeah. that's something christians have thought about because we do have the serious um the serious expectation yeah and we treat we treat our bodies with an expectation of they'll be raised
0: yeah yeah and yeah obviously i don't think that if you I personally don't think you could cremate your body. Wow, well, we got off topic, but if you, <laughs> 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 uh, I personally don't think if you could cremate your body. You're just going to be like straight up sent to hell or something like that. Oh, but I do God. think there is something to just being buried um, mm-hmm. for one to expect the resurrection, but also I believe burning bodies was a pagan practice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, in a lot of civilizations and with, with Christians, it was different. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yes. There we go. Okay. But, That was off topic. Anyway, back to the end of this. I think we're done with learning in wartime and learning in bad times. So uh, thank you for watching. If you made it this far, please like and subscribe. Uh, You all are awesome. If you want to support us on Patreon or through uh, buying some really cool merch, go ahead and do that. Um, Yeah, links are in the description. Uh, Thank you. God bless.